Good morning. We're talking about the fascicle uh, Gyoji, continuous practice, the chapter from the Shobo Ginzo, the two chapters from the Shobo Ginzo. And as we've heard over and over again, the text is about continuous practice, <clears throat> whatever that means. So Dogen, a great poet, a great teacher, a great practitioner, and this whole thing is a montage with one purpose. The, both these chapters is a montage of examples of lives of teachers from, the, from our lineage. It's all made up, of course. But he uses these lives and his own practice and his poetry and his metaphors as a skeleton to, to hang on to drape these teachings over. And what is the teaching? The teaching is appreciate this moment of your life. Appreciate with great attention this moment of your life. And he shows in these fascicles a thousand ways of doing that. Because each person's life is different. And there is no other better life. <clears throat> so he has Mahakashapa with his ascetic practice, and he has emperors and kings with their particular kind of practice, and he has Bodhidharma with sitting practice, and he has people who are yelling and jumping around with their particular kind of practice. There is no better life than the life we are leading in this moment. There's different life in the future. And there was a different life in the past, but this particular moment. And so Dogen is saying the continuous practice of appreciation of this moment, of even more intimate than appreciation, the continuous practice of living embodied, engaged. So lots of examples, how they lived, why they practiced, what they did. And part of the teaching of this is each of us has to continuously clarify for ourselves, why am I doing this? Why practice? What is the, my intention of practice in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a war, in the middle of unstable times, in the middle of social injustice, in the middle of environmental degradation? What, why am I practicing? Now, many kinds of religion are basically ways of trying to defend what we think is safest. Trying to, to cherish a certain kind of status quo, a certain privilege, a certain prosperity. But Buddhism is a very different, has a very different approach and especially Zen Buddhism, has a very different approach. So the foundation <clears throat> of some successful religious traditions, sects, is help me have experiences, help me have more of the experiences that I want. Help me have more of the experiences that I think are meaningful. Or the foundation of other sects are help me 
Give me rules and regulations that I can follow and then I know that I'm doing right and I'll be rewarded for following them. And some traditions abandon effort and say, well, effort is not necessary. I'll just relax and enjoy my, my ease. And some traditions are, if you join this tradition, you can be right. And we love to be right. We just love to be right. But in the Zen Buddhist tradition, it really keeps coming back to what is the direct experience of this moment? And what is it about this moment that makes me curious or interested? Or what is this moment revealing to me? I was talking to someone earlier about looking at thought. They were saying it's difficult to look at thought. But really, it's not difficult to look at thought. We all look at thought all the time. But if we're looking for a particular thing in the thought, it's very hard to find it. If in this particular moment we have an idea of how it should be, what we should look at, what we're going to see, then we look in this moment and we don't find it. So we have to see what is the moment teaching us? What is the continuous practice How is it practicing us? What's being revealed to us? Not what do I think I'm looking for, what do I think I know, and I'm now going to go out there and verify it and be right, but rather I will hold my experience of past and my anticipation of the future for a few moments and see what is this moment revealing to me. So here's a little bit from Gyoji. And so remember, Gyoji, uh, this chapter, this fascicle, is a medieval text. So it was written during the high Middle Ages of Europe. It was like reading Chaucer 400 years before Chaucer. And anybody who in school has tried to read Chaucer knows that it's almost unintelligible because the language has changed so much and the circumstances have changed so much and has to be translated into modern English for it to be read smoothly, at least, at least for me. Well, this is 400 years before Chaucer. So this is a, a high Middle, Age, Middle Ages text. This is something that was written down and preserved long before Gutenberg. The oldest printed material is the Diamond Sutra. And they think the Diamond Sutra was printed on woodblock prints around, somewhere around the year 1000, 500 years before Gutenberg. So when we're reading this text, we have to read it through an eye. Here's a medieval text and it's been passed on for you know, 800 years, and there, there's something interesting in it that each generation has found, but I think we also have to regard it as a medieval text. So let's, let's read a section of this and then look at what might be, at least what I think might be helpful. The founders of the Han and the Wei dynasties in China 
Emperors Gao and Dai, understood the verses of heaven and transmitted the expression of the terrestrial forms. We clarify their words, the fundamentals of earth, heaven, and humans are understood. Now, so Dogen is writing about a mysterious past. He's writing in Japan about this fabled country of China, which they only had, there was connection back and forth, but China was, at least from what we can tell, regarded as a, a mystical place of great culture and you know, great virtue. So he's putting these medieval icons up and saying, okay, these people are living in a perfect world, perfect leaders. Everything is going well for them. When you've got perfect leaders, society functions well and people are harmonious and people are happy and people understand things. Okay. So that's the first thing he's laying out. Secondly, it now says, people who have not encountered the guidance of such virtuous leaders do not know what it is to truly serve the emperor or truly serve their parents. Well, who is in, who has encountered the guidance of such virtuous exemplars that aligned the whole country, that aligned everything in peace and harmony? Nobody. Certainly not, not us. So we could put the Buddha in that place, perhaps. But that's not the point he's making here. He continues, they are unfortunate subjects of the emperor and unfortunate children of their parents. As subjects or children, they miss a precious jewel and waste the passage of time. Born into such a family, they have no authority to govern and cling to petty positions. So in this chapter, basically what he's saying is, if you have a really, really good background, if you grew up in a heavenly realm, if you grew up in a, a wise community with wise leaders, with wise parents, with wise people, and things were harmonious, that is great. If you didn't grow up in those, that kind of community, if you grew up in a place that had um, the opposite, thus the nation, nation is murky, rarely known for its purity. Since we have a lowly life in such a remote land as Japan, where the Buddha's true dharma is not heard, what is the use of clinging to this bodily life? Why do we cling to this bodily life? What do we devote ourselves? And to what do we devote ourselves? So in this passage, he says, okay, whether you had a great upbringing or whether you had a miserable upbringing, whether you're in the, in the middle of the throes of total social degeneration and war, poverty and sickness, plague, or whether you have grown up in a heavenly realm, either way, what's the use of clinging to this bodily life? Why do we cling to this bodily life? And what do we devote ourselves? So that's just the question he's asking. Okay. <clears throat> you grew up in, what, what's important to you? What is the, the motivation for your life? What are you hanging on to? And that's a question that is, of course, applicable in all realms. 
So we have short-term reasons we practice. We have middle-term reasons we practice. We have long-range reasons we practice. And we have reasons beyond reason to practice. And reasons always have their pros and cons. So why are we practicing? What is the core of our life about? Now, in Buddhism, we often say that there are worldly cores of life, that people are striving to end up in a better realm. They're striving to be famous. They're striving to make it to you know, America's best or British's best, to win the cooking award or the singing award or the dancing award or the magic award or the cooking award or whatever. That's one of the things that people are striving for in a culture. To have pleasure. To be right. To be successful. Is that a worthwhile goal? At one point I got very interested in Olympic athletes, thinking, what happens after they've won a gold medal? What do they end up doing? What is their life about when they have their whole life was about, I want to win the gold medal or a silver medal or a bronze medal in the Olympics, and they did it, or else they got too old and couldn't do it. Then what? What happens to a life? What then becomes important? So. It is great that people have intentions of any sort, because the, the fundamental motivation for an intention is relief of suffering. But the Buddha just asked, or Dogen asked in this fascicle, what is your core intention? What is the core belief that you have about how to end suffering? What is the, the core principle that is the, that drives you, moves your practice. Dogen continues, those who have a worthy and noble life should not cling to it for anything, even for the sake of the Dharma. It's also true of those with a lowly life. So, <coughs> he lays out these two worlds world of great ease, comfort, great felicity, where it lays out a world of great despair, a lowly life, a great hardship, a great impoverishment, a great... And he says, either side, we should not cling to it. That is, our identity, who we think we are, is not about the circumstance. We have a hard time realizing that our thoughts which are random, which just come out of nowhere, which are ephemeral, which are transient, we have a hard time believing that we are not our thoughts. We keep asking our thoughts, you know, what's the truth? What's the truth? Thought, tell me what the truth is. But that's not the, that's, you can't answer those questions at the level of tools. So whether we have a good background or not a good background, it's going to change. It's only flowing through. It's only temporary. 
And we have this beautiful heavenly realm that we're all living in right here. One person with a gun could destroy it. One earthquake, one quiver of the earth could destroy it. It's a temporary condition. Now, it's easy for people who are having a hard time to, to, to say and hope, this is a temporary condition, i got to get out of here, i got to do something for this. To, but when people are having a good time, it's still a temporary condition. It's no less temporary, no more temporary. So what Dogen is saying, this moment, don't cling to this moment. Don't imagine that this moment will be replicated. Don't imagine that this moment is going to come again. Don't imagine that there's some, something hidden and secret in this moment that you can't see. This moment fully reveals itself in this moment. Appreciate this moment, this time. And, you know, fundamentally, we can say that this moment is the first foundation of mindfulness, the body is body, the earth is supporting the body, and then it gradually has the other harmonics. But eventually this moment includes everything, of course, our conceptual mind. So, so here we go. He says, even for the sake of the Dharma, don't cling to anything. Don't cling to some idea. Don't, it's all flowing through. On the other hand, he says, those who have a lowly life, they dedicate their self to following the way for the sake of the Dharma, their life will improve. On the scale of improvement and, and unimprovement, if you're having a really hard time and you start really following the precepts and you clarify your intention and you align your body-mind, your circumstances will improve. Your view of your circumstances will change. And your circumstances itself, according to karma, will unfold. The truth is the truth. It doesn't matter what our circumstances are. But if we are practicing diligently, things change. Things change. They change in the direction. So the medieval way of saying this is, on the other hand, if those with a lowly life dedicate themselves to following the way for the sake of the Dharma, their life is more worthy than the life of the heavenly devas, a wheel-turning king, the gods of earth and heaven, or sentient beings in the three realms. That's obvious, right? This life that we are leading is really important to us. It's really important. It's more important than having angels in the clouds. And if we learn to cherish and appreciate and practice the Dharma and appreciate this life, appreciate this moment, that appreciation becomes the foundation for the world. How do you appreciate this life if you've got emotions that are difficult? So Dogen is saying each of these masters that he gives examples about lived a full life, just like we live a full life. Each of them studied the way by studying their life, by practicing their life, by undertaking a life, a full life, by breathing. We breathe for a whole life, continuous breath, continuous in this moment, continuous um, aliveness, continuous awareness. Nobody 
lives a half a breath. Nobody lives a half a half alive in a deep sense. So Dogen's medieval text <clears throat> is trying to use examples to, to inspire us to pay attention. Now one of the hot words, at least was some point, was a non-dual. Non-dual, not two, not separation, not discrimination, not um, judging, criticizing, evaluating, not two. What's before, not before two. And there are a couple of ways of looking at that relative to this text. First off, everything that we see is processed right here, right? It's obvious. And everything we hear is processed right here. And everything we think is processed right here for the sake of this analogy. And everything we feel is processed right here. The very least is processed in our particular brain. And if there's a hole in the brain in some place, then some of the activity of that process gets truncated. The dual way of looking at things is there is an outside out there that's doing things to the inside in here. There's an outside out there that really is got its own independent life, and I'm a little pinball that is shooting around and being bounced off of walls and bricks and people. But our experience, our experience is, even if I feel <clears throat> this air, or I feel table, or a podium, or a cloth, or a floor, or a head, we're experiencing it very, very intimately. Very intimately. We're always experiencing things very intimately. We kind of say, yeah, that's true. But when it gets down to governments, or parents, or mountains, or the carbon dioxide in the air, or the warming of the oceans, then we sort of think, oh, no, not, not intimate. That's, that's a problem out there. I'm going to fix the problem out there. It's all intimate. It's all right here. There is no way you can even convince yourself. I mean, you can think anything, of course. But experientially, it's all intimate. So who creates President Trump? Now, people often hate this particular teaching because, first off, it involves full responsibility. also involves nobody's wrong, so we can't be right. It also involves um, that the place of action is right here, that the, the source of the meaning is right here, that the place that if we feel something needs to be rectified, it has to start right here. 
We have to respond from right here. So Dogen Zinji, in this fascicle of continuous practice, is talking about the continual response, the continual investment, that's not the right word, the continual effulgence, the continual burgeoning, the continual blossoming, the continual effervescence, the continual manifestation from right here. And sometimes it manifests as Mahakashapa, and sometimes it manifests as Parshva, and sometimes it manifests as Bodhidharma, and sometimes it manifests as Huiko, and sometimes it manifests as Dogen, and sometimes it manifests as us. Here's another little slice. When we say we are responsible, it comes from here. It's not talking about our personality. It is so hard for any of us to believe that we are not our thoughts, that thoughts are actually passing through us. And it's so hard for us who define ourselves by our emotions or by our body to not define responsibility with the emotional and the body and the mind and the, the views. Because those emotions, body, mind, and views all have the same source, all have the same origin. If we are not the random, flickering, ephemeral, transitory experiences that we call thought, then what are we? Where is that responsibility? If we don't define ourselves by which particular emotional state that we happen to be feeling right now, if that's not our definition of who we are, if that's not our understanding of who we are, and we are depressed, or we are happy, or we are slow, or we are fast, or we are articulate, or we are dense, and we're not defining who I am by these ephemeral emotional, then who are we? What is the source? So that question is also a continual thread through this practice. What is the source? How is the source constantly manifesting in interesting ways? So we come to meditation, we come to zazen, and we, we sit down and meditate, and we finally, you know, after we kind of learn to get comfortable, figure out a way of getting comfortable, and we begin to pay attention to the first foundation of mindfulness, body is body. But that's not thinking, that's before thought. The earth supports us whether we're thinking good thoughts or bad thoughts, whether we're thinking crazy thoughts or not, we're still being supported. There is a direct visceral experience. That visceral experience is the foundation. Now, can we say that that visceral experience is the visceral experience of this particular old body, or a young body, or a vital body, or a weak body, or a fat body, or a thin body? We can't point to the thing and say that is the 
visceral experience. That is the essence. Because that which is aware, that which is alive, that which is present, is always present aware alive before this particular body. So we sit down to meditate. We sit down to meditate to begin to not believe our thoughts. We sit down to meditate to begin to not believe, to not define ourselves by a particular emotional state. We sit down to meditate to become settled and present in the first foundation of mindfulness. And then we look beyond that into the inclusive nature of mind. Continuously. It's a practice. So let's talk about that practice for a moment. We have practices that deal with the world. We have practices that deal with our thoughts, which is the way that we perceive the world. We have practices that deal with our emotions, which, is, which are harmonics of the body. We have practices of the body. But the practice of the entire field all at once is a different practice. The practice of the entire field of sitting right here in this room and feeling everything you feel and seeing everything you see and hearing everything you hear and seeing it as a dynamic, quivering aliveness that is Momentarily, we, the eye flickers and sees a person, and momentarily the ear flickers and hears a sound. The mind processes and hears a word. But the whole field is a quivering aliveness that permeates all of the senses. So to rest in the field of awareness and the way that you know, I tend to do that is you start off with the body as body and you feel the hands and you feel the hands and the arms and you feel the hands and the arms and the feet and the legs and you feel the hands and the arms and the feet and the legs and the torso and the abdomen and you feel the whole body all at once and as you feel the whole body all at once it becomes more and more diffuse and you begin feeling the aliveness of the body, the whole aliveness of the body and you find that whole aliveness has no particular boundary and begin touching the boundaryless nature of our truth, which is totally inclusive. Dogen says, it's possible to meet the Buddha when the Ubindara, Udambara flower is in bloom. Udambara flower is a, a, high, you know, is a mystical flower that blooms once every thousand years, let's say. People count the years looking forward to this. So we can anticipate anything. We'll have a great enlightenment, we'll have a great awakening sometime in the next thousand years or lifetimes or thousand lifetimes or kalpas or eons or kodis of kalpas. He continues, but the coming of the first ancestor that's Bodhidharma, from India will never happen again. Whatever is past, gone. 
gone. Beginning of this talk, gone, gone. And yet, those who call themselves descendants of the ancestors are like one in the kingdom of Chu who treasured an ordinary green stone thinking it was jade. We mistake our thoughts of the past, our ideas, as precious. But unable to tell jade from stone, they think the teachers of sutras and treatises are equal to Bodhidharma. The Bodhidharma is this special icon. It is so because of their limited learning and shallow understanding. Those who do not recognize the authentic seed of prajna. Where is the authentic seed of prajna? Prajna is wisdom. Where is the authentic seed of wisdom? Where is the wisdom to know what your mouth is tasting? Where is the wisdom to know what your guts are doing? Where is the wisdom to know if you're sitting on the floor? Those who do not recognize the authentic seed of prajna, of right here, right now, this moment, this whole inclusive, do not become descendants of the ancestral path. Those who do not recognize this wholeness, this aliveness, this presence, Dogen says, they wander around in the crooked paths of name and gain. How sad. Please make it real. Don't make this text some weird, obscure, medieval text. Personalize it. See how it connects to you. And if you don't understand how something connects directly to you, then ask Kisei. Personalize the text. Make it alive. It's all our practice. It's all our practice. And nobody is left outside of it. Nobody is defective. And even our brokenness is part of the whole and can be turned into wisdom. So please, take the practice of this very moment. Let it teach whatever you can, whatever it can teach you and turn that teaching into wisdom for the benefit of the practice of generosity to do our best to help others. <clears throat>